Episode 13, Earthshaker. Welcome everyone once again to A History of the Inca. I am your host, Nick Mashinsky. Here we are, our second episode in a single month. If for some reason you skipped episode 12, welcome to season 2, then you missed a very important announcement. We are now putting out episodes every two weeks here at A History of the Inca. And this has been a goal of mine really since I began the show. Speaking of beginning the podcast, today, February 16th, 2020, is the anniversary of our first episode. It has already been a year since I first uploaded that introduction episode and put it out into the world. I can't believe it. It seems like this year has really flown by. So happy birthday to the show. And what better way to celebrate than to mention that A History of the Inca is now on Patreon. You can help support the show monetarily by simply giving $2 a month, which will be invested directly into the show. That is exactly what our first patrons, Ol and Cosman, did. Thank you both very much for supporting the show and for being a part of it. And I want to thank all of you listeners as well for your continued support of the show over the past year. Now then, as I mentioned in episode 9, The Sources, the details of certain events as well as their order becomes more clear as we move closer to the present day. In the case of Pachacuti's reign, there are plenty of details about what he accomplished in his time as Sapa Inca. However, the order in which he carried out certain tasks, made laws, went on campaigns, or rebuilt Cusco, is about as clear as mud. While I was researching Pachacuti's life and accomplishments, I found myself flipping through several sources trying to decipher which events took place in relation to each other. One source would say that he went on campaign first. Another said that he rebuilt Cuzco and then expanded his state's borders. And yet another would say he marched away with his army, came back to Cuzco victorious, reorganized the city, and then went on campaign once again. And then, well, you get the picture. After staring at the timeline I sketched, I had to tell myself that if the sources and modern-day scholars couldn't quite figure out the order of events in Pachacuti's life, then I wouldn't be able to either. So in terms of what came first, conquest or Cusco, we will first cover Pachacuti's conquests, and then we will get into the city of Cusco and how Pachacuti remade the city. By not flip-flopping between his conquests and the city, will hopefully avoid any potential confusion, and I think this allows for the show to flow quite a bit better. The events we cover may not be in the exact order in which they happened, but considering that the experts can't even agree on the order of events, I feel comfortable going this route. And before I forget, there are maps that go along with this episode. Go to incapodcast.wordpress.com and under the Maps menu, you'll find the episode 13 Maps. Now, I'm not a web designer, so I'm not sure if it is a good idea to have the maps in a separate menu or along with the episodes themselves. So any thoughts or advice on that would be appreciated. 
Now then, let's return to where we left Patrikuti, as Sapa Inca, drowning in the spoils of war that his victory over the Chanka brought him. The celebrations were in full swing within the city of Cuzco. Pachacuti, fresh off his victory against the Chanka, now held all of that group's wealth at his disposal. He could have kept it all himself, but likely knowing his position as Sapa Inca was only a few hours old, Pachacuti doled out a great deal of the spoils to his captains and local lords who had helped secure the city from the Chanka threat. That is when it happened. A pot smashed behind Pachacuti's head. It wasn't some drunken error. It was a large pot deliberately aimed where the Sapa Inca had his head, but a moment before. The assailant was quickly apprehended and tortured. It didn't take long for him to reveal that it was the Cuyo who had plotted the attack. We actually met the Cuyo once before in episode 10. They inhabited a portion of the Sacred Valley to the north of the Cusco Basin. Kapak Yapanki subjugated the Cuyo during his reign because the leader refused to provide exotic feathers from the lowlands, and Kapak Yapanki wanted to replace the local deity with the sun god Inti. It appears that the Cuyo had seen the recent political turmoil in Cusco. The Chanka invasion, the overthrow of the previous Sapa Inca, Inca Urco, and the installation of a new Sapa Inca as an opportunity to strike. But they missed, and they would pay. Pachacuti soon assembled his army and marched into the Sacred Valley and to the Coyo Basin. Once there, he had his men execute many of the inhabitants. Some sources have claimed that the Cuyo were completely wiped out. However, they have appeared in colonial-era documents and were possibly elsewhere in the Sacred Valley or in one of the coca-producing valleys in the northeast. With the Cuyo dispatched, Pachacuti turned on several Inca allies. However, these allies were groups who had not come to the aid of Cuzco during its time of need. So Pachacuti sent his brother, Inca Oroca, through the Sacred Valley, bringing various formal allies under the direct control of the Inca. This was done up to Oyente Tambo, where Pachacuti would erect one of several estates for himself. However, we should be cautious of such tales according to some scholars, as it is unclear if these tales of conquering allies is fact or fiction. Some have claimed that these conquests may just be stories, meant to display how powerful Pachacuti really was. As I stated in episode 10, it is difficult at times to say what aspects of the Inca history actually happened and what parts were exaggerated to embellish an emperor's rule. Nevertheless, we do know that Pachacuti expanded the Inca borders from beyond the Cusco and Sacred Valleys. After some time in Cusco, Pachacuti gave his allies, or perhaps we should call them subjects at this point. Anyways, Pachacuti gave them three months to gather their forces and prepare for another campaign. During this time, the Sapa Inca prepared by making the proper sacrifices to all the Huacas in Cusco, including the Huaca for Inti, the sun deity, which resided in the Coricancha, 
the Temple of the Sun. We'll discuss that temple in great detail in a coming episode. Once the three months was up, a 100,000-man army had been assembled. Loki Yupanki, brother of Pachacuti, was left in Cusco as governor as the Sapa Inca went to the northwest. The Apurimac River turned out to be a minor obstacle for this massive army. Pachacuti had two suspension bridges built over the waterway, made from wicker and rope, anchored in place by great pillars of stone. Once complete, the Inca marched over and were quickly received by several groups. The Quichuas, Umasayos, Ayamares, Yangaras, Chumbiblicas, and even some remnants of the Chanca offered vassalage to the Inca. The Inca and his army came yet to another river, this time the Banque. Again, though, the river caused but a minor delay in the Inca's campaign, as another set of bridges were constructed. And yet again, a few groups came to the Inca to offer vassalage. However, they also came with news. A group called the Soras had teamed up with another group called the Lucanas, and yet more Chanka remnants to mount a defensive against the Inca. This would simply not do for Pachacuti, so he prepared his army for battle. The Soras and their allies were in a well-fortified position. As we know, the Andes are difficult to traverse. But this particular spot seemed to have it all. Cliffs, ravines, mountains, terrible roads... It's almost as if we are being told how nearly impossible such a task was, to make it even all the more impressive if it were to be accomplished. Which it would be, of course. Pachacuti split his army into multiple groups and besieged the Soros on all sides. The Soros and their allies were soon overwhelmed by the onslaught and surrendered to the Inca. It turns out Pachacuti didn't even need his entire army to bring the Soros to heel either. He had split off a good number of men and had them march into Kondasuyu and Andasuyu. If you need help remembering which direction is which, Kondasuyu is considered west of Cusco, while Andasuyu is east, towards the Amazon. From where they were at though, the army heading to Kondasuyu was heading more south. This expedition was able to conquer groups up to Arequipa, which is about a hundred miles west-southwest of Lake Titicaca. Once they had reached this point, they headed back up the Andes and towards Cusco. But they didn't stop bringing in various groups. No, no, no. They were able to convince the Choyagas, Canas, and Uriucache to submit to Inca rule. Whether this was done willingly or by force is unclear. Meanwhile, the forces that journeyed into Andesuyu reached the base of the eastern side of the Andes, about 40 kilometers from Cusco, a land much more lush than where they were from. This campaign brought in valuable coca-producing valleys under Inca control. We'll talk more about coca and how it was used during the time of the Inca, as well as how it is used in the Andes today, in a later episode. 
However, the army also came back with several other interesting resources, namely jaguars and pythons. They transported these animals back to Cusco alive with the pythons, quote, rolled up on litters, always feeding them meat. When the armies from Kandasuyu and Andasuyu arrived outside of Cusco, they waited. They didn't want to enter the city without Pachacuti, to whom all the glory would go to. They didn't have to wait long for their Sapa Inca to arrive, the Soras in tow. The Soras wore red borlas on their clothes. They were doused with chicha and had corn flour put in their hair. By doing this, Pachacuti had proclaimed all of their towns, lords, as well as all the land that they had controlled were now in his possession. Not to mention it was completely embarrassing to the Soras to be paraded around in such a way. Pachacuti was debriefed by the leaders of the Kandasuyu and Andasuyu armies. The captains laid out garments, weapons, insignias, and other spoils for Pachacuti to tread upon. And unlike with the Chanka, Pachacuti did so willingly for the first time. Singing about their expeditions, the Inca entered Cuzco laden with spoils and serpents that they had carried back. The Soras were made to declare their crimes out loud for all to hear. Afterwards, the prisoners were sent to Kanga Guaki. Now, scholars know that Guaki means house in Quechua. However, Kanga does not seem to have a clear translation. But do not fear, because what I am about to describe sounds awfully like a prison or jail, but with a significant catch. Prisoners in Kanga Guaki would have to spend just three days there. If they survived, they would be let free and able to return to their people. Sounds easy enough. Except the pythons and jaguars that were brought back from Andesuyu were kept in this prison as well. And although the pythons were given some food on their trip to Cusco, the jaguars had not been fed for two whole days. So, uh, good luck? The next campaign that Pachacuti would embark on was to Koyasuyu. This was the region southeast of Cusco, towards Lake Titicaca, and the rest of the Altiplano. Word had reached the Sapa Inca that a lord called Capac Capa was extremely powerful in the region and wished to challenge the Inca's strength. However, Pachacuti was pleased to hear that another lord was brave enough to challenge him. Thus, Pachacuti sent word out to his various Caracas once again to prepare for another campaign. This time, 150,000 troops were raised, and once the proper sacrifices to the various Huacas were made, the army headed southeast. The Koya and Inca met at Hatun Koya, where a bloody battle ensued. However, it appears the Inca had a valuable ally in the Lupaca, who had defeated the Koya in previous skirmishes. With their allies assisting them, the Inca were able to capture Capacapa and kill the Koya lord. With their leader dispatched, the Koya surrendered, and Pachacuti walked over the spoils he had won. 
While he was down there in Koyasuyu, Pachacuti would march as far south as modern-day Chile, bringing in various groups into the Inca sphere. He would arrive bringing gifts for the local Caracas to convince them to join what was quickly becoming an empire. The Sapa Inca would feast these lords and even go as far as wearing similar dress as the local Caracas. This blatant attempt at flattery apparently worked on many occasions, as more and more groups would agree to submit to Inca rule. Satisfied with what he accomplished, Pachacuti left his son, Amaru Tupac Inca, in the region as Caraca, to allow the young Inca to gain experience in governing. Back north, Pachacuti went, stopping at the great body of water, Lake Titicaca. The Sapa Inca ordered his engineers to study the amazing monumental architecture at Tiwanaku. Pachacuti would use the architecture from the site as inspiration for a future project. Next, he boarded a boat, which ferried him to the Island of the Sun, the same island where Viracocha had ordered the sun to rise up and into the sky. On this island, Pachacuti ordered a temple be built to honor the sun, which of course we'll visit in due time. With his work in Koyasuyu complete, Pachacuti returned to Cusco, once again triumphant and entered with celebrations to match his feats in the southeast. However, this time he took notice of the state of the city, and decided that some work needed to be done to make Cusco live up to its title, the Naval of the Universe. <laughs> 